What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. I'm Peter Neal, host of Conversations from the Pointed Firs. My guest today is Lincoln Payne, maritime historian and author of Sea and Civilization, an extraordinary one-volume maritime history of the world, and Down East, an illustrated maritime history of Maine, about which we will be speaking today. Lincoln, welcome. Thanks very much, Peter. It's nice to be here. Great to see you. We usually start these conversations with a, a kind of introduction so that everybody else is welcomed into the circle. Uh, I guess my question, first question to you is, where did you come from and how did you get to the point where you, you have accumulated so much astonishingly uh, clear and comprehensive knowledge of the history of the sea? Well, well I'm, I'm delighted to think that you think it's clear and comprehensive. To me, it seems less clear than I would like. But as I think you know, certainly, I grew up in New York and I became interested in maritime history thanks to my stepfather who joined the South Street Seaport Museum, uh, probably the year it was founded back in the 60s. And I stayed interested in that. And during high school, I was a volunteer for Opsail 76 for the nation's bicentennial. So I got really immersed in the maritime heritage movement. And after college, I worked for Sea History Magazine as an editor for three years, and then took off some time from maritime things to focus on editing, which is my other interest and, I guess, passion. And then in the early 90s, I thought I needed to supplement my income because uh, I had two children, and I started writing Ships of the World an historical encyclopedia because there didn't seem to be such a book in the world and I thought it would be useful. And from there, I became very interested in the idea of doing world maritime history because we were at that time in a transition away from the focus on ships and artifacts and into a more uh, nuanced cultural understanding of, of maritime history and its importance to human development and civilizational progress and, and, and non-civilizational progress. I apologize for forgetting Ships of the World because I do remember how useful that was. There was no place that you could go and essentially assemble the basic information about the historic ships all around the world. And of course, there are hundreds and hundreds of them in public and private preservation. And that information, uh, was never consolidated in one place, as far as I could tell, until you put it all together in, in that book. What interests me, of course, is that you're a historian without the traditional uh, pathway of an historian. No seven years toiling in the library to earn a piece of paper, your PhD, that validates your, your authenticity and abilities. Um, in this case, totally unnecessary. 
Did you ever think about doing the following the academic path? Well, I did, but not in the traditional sense. I remember when I graduated from college, um, my mother was very eager for me to go to graduate school, and she seemed to be somewhat indiscriminate about where I should go. So first she thought I should go to law school, which didn't hold any interest for me. And then she thought I should be a, go to journalism school, which also didn't hold very much interest for me. So I went off into publishing and maritime things. And while I was trying to write or trying to develop uh, the sea and civilization or what became the sea and civilization, I was invited to join a PhD program at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And so I was, I spent a lot of time there over the course of about seven or eight years, but for various reasons, the PhD did not happen. One reason, very simply, was that you couldn't use the book as your thesis, and I couldn't publish the thesis because I was already under contract for a book. So it became sort of a, a political issue more than anything else. And when the book came out, there was the possibility of refining uh, some aspect of the sea and civilization and focusing on a tighter subject. And I realized that I had done what I wanted to do with that uh, in that regard. And the PhD route didn't seem to make very much sense to me at that point. Well, save from the academy in one sense. Um, well, but the the academy the academy made that book, and if I hadn't spent the time I did at Leiden, the book would have been a vastly inferior product. So I I have nothing but the highest regard for people who do do the academic path because they make possible the research that I do. Well, let's let's talk about the book. Um, let's talk about the illustrated history of, uh, of Maine, and. You open with a kind of lovely beginning, defining the sense of place. How do you articulate that in such a way that provides the context for everything else uh, that follows? What I say in, in that introduction is that the coast of Maine is divided up into sort of four distinct regions, each one of which uh, creates its own set of maritime industries or fosters its own unique set of maritime industries. So you have a, a small, you have a sort of smooth coast in the south. You've got the indented and peninsulid coast uh, between Casco Bay and Penobscot Bay. Then you have the islands, the big islands from Vinyl Haven to the east. And then you have the sort of the cliff coast. And as a result of that, those environments create different conditions. So for some, shipbuilding is uh, more important. For others, fishing is more important. Then there are the particular industries that grew up along the coast, which aren't in themselves maritime, but the lime industry and the granite industry in particular, also the ice industry. And, and of course, the other great thing is that if you look at the state of Maine, it's really almost its own watershed. Uh, very few rivers flow out of Maine, and a lot of rivers flow into Maine, and a lot of them actually start and, and finish in Maine. And so those rivers, which are vast, and, and we have to appreciate the fact that 
you know, for Easterners, we have a sense of rivers that's quite distinct from what people in the Western part of this country have. You know, you look at a map and you see those blue ribbons flowing all over the place. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, when you're looking at rivers crossing the Great Plains, they're extremely shallow, too shallow for boats in most cases, and not very wide in others. So the rivers in Maine really are highways. And one of the things that they enabled us to do as Mainers was to harvest the incredibly rich timberlands. And so shipbuilding uh, from that wood and also other lumber trades became extremely important. And it was thanks to the fact that we could go harvest timber hundreds of miles from the water and float it downstream to ports where it would be gathered in into ships and taken to the Caribbean or Europe or uh, the Southern states and really made possible the sort of the woody beginnings of American architecture and, and it, during the colonial and federal periods. Well, let's realize also, of course, that those same rivers as highways were sacred and equally efficient for the fishers and transport of indigenous peoples. Uh, long before the European uh, discovery, uh, it sets a context in the sense that those activities first defined by by native Mainers before Europeans that needs to be further understood and explained. Well, certainly there have been people in Maine for probably twelve or thirteen thousand years, anyway, and there have been different waves of people. It's not as though a bunch of Native American people showed up in Maine and stayed and and didn't move. They had agency. They responded to climate change, as and the climate has changed a great deal in Maine over the last 13,000 years. They responded to the movement of other peoples in and around the state. So it's it's not as though there's sort of a static population any more than there is anywhere else in the world. But yes, the maritime environment and the, and the watery environment of the interior were extremely important. And if you look at some of the place names in Maine, or if you look at many of the place names in Maine, uh, they have to do a lot with uh, fish and where the fishing was good and even the types of fishing. Uh, so there's a place name, I think it's the Pasigasawakig uh, up around Belfast, which is, I, I think that's the one that means a place for spearing sturgeon by torchlight. Um, <laughs> and there are, um, and, and we know from archaeological research, uh, as well as more recent ethnographic research, and of course, uh, the ongoing traditions that have been written down uh, in the last few hundred years, that the fishing industry, uh, such as it is, was extremely important. And one of the most fascinating uh, instances of this comes from uh, archaeological excavations at the Turner Farm on North Haven, where they discovered that about around the same time that the pyramids were being built in Egypt, uh, there were people hunting swordfish. And swordfish hunting is not a subsistence fishery. It never has been. You know, if you think back to sort of the 1950s and the 1960s, all those sort of grainy black and white photographs of Hemingway and people of his ilk uh, showing off standing next to their marlins uh, and swordfish. It's really a prestige hunt. 
the fish is very good, but it's not something you need to to do if you have abundant access to say lobster or oysters or codfish. But there were people we know going out and fishing for swordfish from North Haven and, and other islands. And this was undoubtedly a prestige practice. But the interesting thing that we also know and, and have been able to figure out from looking really carefully at the archaeological ex excavations is that in hunting different types of fish, the people, even with that technology, which is not terribly sophisticated, the use of it was, but that, you know, by our standards today, it wasn't very sophisticated. But even using the technology available then, they were able to upset the natural order of things. And so the types of fish and the types of sea mammals that were available was affected by how native peoples hunted 3,000, 4,000 years ago. And this is a very important thing to realize because if people with very small populations and very basic technology can affect the natural balance of things, then people with the technology available to us in the 21st century and in the numbers of, uh, that we are today uh, have a huge impact. So as we turn to the European discovery, which of course by definition is a maritime enterprise, done by ship, uh, uh, arrival in Maine, exploration of Maine, settlement of Maine, almost entirely a as a European phenomenon done via the coastwise transportation and uh, uh, engagement. Oh, absolutely. And uh, to the extent that Europeans ventured inland, they only ventured inland along the rivers and following usually following native uh, native american predecessors who had carved out the best portages between rivers and lakes but fundamentally european development of the main coast um, and interior was as you say a maritime enterprise give me some examples that that are unfamiliar that most of us may not know of of how that occurred can you can you be a little more specific there are small towns that uh crop up in the history of maine in the federalist well colonial and federalist period uh machias much more important relative to the rest of the state in the early period of the united states than it would become, say, today. As the economy has changed and as transportation industry has changed, one of the huge differences between the earlier periods of Maine history and the 20th century, mid-20th century on, is the road system. So in the, in the 18th and 19th century, you find all of these towns located on the tips of peninsulas which makes perfect sense because if you're going along the coast, you just want to go glancing from peninsula to peninsula, island to island. But as soon as Route 1 comes along, I guess the old King's Highway, Route 1 comes along and it skates along the tops of the peninsulas and effectively it cuts them off. So it's much easier all of a sudden to go by road 
and you're really you are very far inland in many respects. If you think of think of the the points of the peninsulas as the old coast, the new coast is really at the heads of those inlets and those rivers. And so Route One had a transformative effect on the economy of Maine and and where people live. And and so that's I think really one of the most important elements to understand about how Maine changed in the last say, 100 years. There, of course, was the time when cod was king. And the uh, arrival of Europeans essentially was an extension of the need to feed Europe as much as it was to feed ourselves. And so there was this uh, entire industry that developed around a single species of of fish. And that the, the harvest and the technology taken to scale probably came, became our first major export. Oh, it, it certainly was our first major export. The first English really to sort of settle around Maine uh, were coming down the coast and settling on the islands and setting up cod stations, essentially. But you also have to remember that the cod industry, really, the reason Europeans came to the Gulf of Maine, which ends with the, the peninsula of Cape Cod, which people sort of tend to forget. But the reason people came across the Atlantic for cod was because they were overfishing the cod in European waters. And this is an extremely important thing to realize. And again, goes back to those uh, the early swordfish hunters of North Haven. You know, people with more basic technology than we have today did upend or upset the natural order of things. And so the the pursuit of cod brought people to Maine and Maine waters in the Gulf of Maine. And Cape Cod really is the sort of southern limit of where cod were found. And as they as they settled here, they fished out the cod population. And this has been well documented by historians looking at records from the uh, mid 1800s and comparing them to, to today's numbers. And I forget exactly what the figures are, but in a coastal swath east of Penobscot Bay, uh, almost to the Canadian border and going out about 20 miles, people in the mid 1800s caught vastly more cod than is than are caught today in the entire Gulf of Maine using you know, engine vessels and and huge nets made of synthetic materials. So the cod industry was extremely important and it was the main driver. The other thing that's important to remember and a a visual that I think we can uh, rely on is, you know, the the pictures of the, the, the lone dory sailor as depicted by Winslow Homer and others. So the dory is taking out uh, long lines from the mother ship, the mother schooner, and rowing into the fog and letting down these long lines of hooks at various intervals to catch cod. And the reason they did that was because they needed to have a bigger catchment area than they had had traditionally. And when people first came over here, the cod fishing was not some guy in a rowboat. It was a bunch of people stationed in barrels mounted on the outside of their sailing vessel, and they would just jig for cod, basically. And it was one line, one man in a barrel, 
and say four, five, six barrels on either side of the boat, and they would lower their lines and pull up the cod. And they did that until it was no longer possible to do that effectively because there weren't as many cod. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, Maine. We are speaking today with maritime historian Lincoln Payne on how the ocean has shaped the history and culture of Maine. So there were these nodes of industry, in effect, that were these settlements were not only to deal with with fish, but also, I assume, fur and and timber. What's the story of the Popham colony? So the Popham colony was part of the the same impetus that that started the Jamestown colony, which is, of course, much better known because it it endured. There were two Virginia companies. One got permission to settle in a in a region to the south. I think between uh, I think their northern limit was around New Jersey, and then the other got permission to settle in the north, and its southern limit was I believe around Maryland. So there was a big overlap because people didn't really understand the geography of North America at that time because we had really hadn't been here. There'd been a handful of English explorers who'd come over and written lovely descriptions about various parts of the continent that they'd experienced, but they didn't have any settlements here. So the Jamestown Company goes off and they settle in Jamestown, which is a terrible swampy place that killed thousands of people before it really became a stable enterprise. The people who came to Popham Colony at the mouth of the Kennebec River were much, much more sensible. They spent a winter here. They said the winters were awful and they packed up and they went home. And they said, this is not something anybody wants to do. And the French had come to the same conclusion, staying in the St. Croix River. Everybody agreed that the winters in the early 1600s were dreadful and no, no sensible people would want to come here. So that was the, the story of the Popham colony. In a nutshell, it lasted a year, no more, and then people left. So it wasn't really until 1621 that the pilgrims came to Massachusetts and uh, set up shop at Plymouth Rock, and then the, the colonization of Massachusetts began. And it was a combination of people moving north from Massachusetts and entrepreneur fishermen coming into Maine that led to the settlement of Maine. So if, if cod was a first major export, certainly the second most valuable natural resource was timber, uh, and particularly to build the, the ships of the Royal Navy. Well, the mass trade was really the most important aspect of that, because the best trees for masts were white pine, which grow to 100 feet or more. And so when the um, the first observers to come here, even before Popham, took one look at the forests around that they encountered just on the coast, and they said, you know, these masts are, would be perfect for the Royal Navy, uh, whose ships were enormous. And the white pine, the, the really large white pine, was bigger than anything that would have been needed for a merchant ship at that time. 
So the Royal Navy, the, the king, essentially, in Parliament, basically declared all white pine found between, I believe, New Jersey and uh, Nova Scotia to be the king's property. And wood surveyors would go out into the woods and they would have a, a um, hatchet and they would lop the tree with three strokes in sort of a crow's foot, but it was also known as the, the king's broad arrow. And if a tree had the king's broad arrow, it belonged to the king and you couldn't take it. Um, but these things were enormous. And the only way you could really efficiently bring them down to where they needed to be was to cut them down in the winter when the ground was hard and drag them. And to drag them required vast teams of oxen. And so people would drag these things down and often they would they would show up at the same place. And if you drive around Freeport and Casco Bay generally, you'll find lots of places called mast landing. And mast landings were where the masts were, were gathered and then put into special built, specially built mast ships, which had ports carved either in the, um, the bows or the stern, and they would just push the, the logs in at great effort and then bung closed the, the bow or the stern and sail back to England. I, I think it was Robert Albion, the main maritime historian, uh, who compared the importance of the mass trade to the petroleum industry in the 20th century, because these, these were that important. Were those ships, did they come to pick the masts up or were those transport ships built in Maine as part of the emerging shipbuilding trade? I believe that those ships were built in, in England. We didn't build terribly big ships until the 1800s. Well, let's talk about the shipbuilding industry. Uh, you know, it's a reflection of the availability of the timber uh, and the demand for maritime enterprise. Well, it's a combination of both. People would, part of it also really was basically about just basic transportation. Because as we said at the beginning, getting around the coast of Maine and inland, the easiest way to do it, and frankly, the only way to do it for the first couple of hundred years was by boat, either ferries crossing rivers or going up and down rivers or going from, from peninsula to peninsula or port to port or island to island. So boats were ubiquitous. They were, they were essentially the cars of the 18th, 19th century, um, absolutely essential. Because you remember until the mid-1800s, there were no railroads, there were no cars, certainly no planes. So boats were the technology of transportation. Let's, let's move to the revolution. We secede from, from the king's mark. We can keep the trees for ourselves. There were numerous examples of revolutionary activity in, in Maine. Can you talk a few, about a few of those? Well, there were th the three sort of highlights of the the revolution in Maine were first there was a skirmish between patriots led by Jeremiah O'Brien up in Machias, and that was in I believe June of seventy five, just a couple of months after the battles of Lexington and Concord, and that's 
considered the first naval engagement of the revolution. That led to Admiral Graves down in Boston ordering one of his lieutenants to chastise a list of towns. It was sort of like a laundry list of every port east of Boston. And of course, back in those days, you didn't really have a choice of how to get from which port to go to. So the only port that they actually got to uh, was the HMS Kanko. It's a tiny little vessel, really, came to to, uh, Portland, which was then called Falmouth. And it fired on the town and destroyed the town. And it was not the first, but certainly not the last time that the uh, city of Portland burned or was burned. But shortly after that, there was the Benedict Arnold-led expedition up the Quebec and the Chaudière Rivers to the St. Lawrence and, and Quebec. And the idea was that the Americans were going to have a pincer movement on Quebec, one army going up the Hudson Valley from New York, and the other being Arnold's crew going up the Kennebec and through the Chain of Lakes and the Dead River and the Chaudière River. And that was a a large expedition, I think about a thousand men. And for reasons that I've never understood and have never seen any explanation for, the boats they built were bateaux, which are heavy, heavy lumber boats used in the lumber trades on the rivers, when it would have made vastly more sense if they'd used canoes, which are quite capacious and much, much easier to portage between navigable streams. So nonetheless, they made it to Quebec and um, the attack failed, but it was a strategic victory because it forced the British to keep thousands of soldiers in Canada that could have been deployed more effectively in the southern part of their holdings here. But the, the most infamous of the naval engagements was the Penobscot Expedition, uh, which was a combination of Continental Navy, private ships, and Massachusetts State Navy vessels, and teasing out the various types of chains of command um, that were available to the Navy, such as it was back then, is very difficult. But it was, needless to say, a, a variety of different commands and commanding officers. So they sail up. They had 39 vessels in total, a few warships per se, but mostly transports uh, that had been impressed into service. They had a pretty motley collection of uh, soldiers and sailors. And the idea was that they were going to take Castine, which had become the heart of the British presence in the 13 colonies. And they sail into to Castine, and they landed, and the British thought they were going to lose. And the Americans dithered, and they couldn't decide on the most effective way to, to deploy their troops or to deploy their ships. And they, they seemed to be on the verge of actually making a successful run at the town when all of a sudden uh, a fleet of very large, very significant Royal Navy ships sails up the Penobscot. And the Americans see this and they, they run away. Uh, they knew that they didn't have anything like the firepower or certainly the training or anything to escape the British. 
But the problem was that the, the British were coming up the bay on a following wind, and the only place the Americans could go was farther up the Penobscot. And in the end, they wound up abandoning all of their vessels, most of which the British destroyed. And it took weeks, and I think in some cases months, for them, the the people who made it ashore, to reach habitable places to the south. Because, again, the ways through the woods were impenetrable, and they didn't know where they were going, and there were no roads to follow. So that became celebrated as the the worst naval defeat by the United States before Pearl Harbor. Well, with the success of the revolution, of course, comes the responsibility to build a new nation without governance, uh, with limited finances, without communications, uh, without political organization. How did that affect Maine? Well, Maine was essentially a colony of Massachusetts, and it suffered, as colonies do, from neglect, from a lack of investment, and from overbearing uh, rich people telling people in the lands and territories and plantations that they owned and controlled from Boston what to do or what not to do. So the people of Maine were really kind of left to their own devices for the most part. And the people of Maine, you know, there was a, there was a serious division in the state between those who wanted independence from Massachusetts and those who didn't. And that, that reared its head fairly early on. But there was a, a very specific problem that prevented the different communities from coming together about this. And that was a coasting law of the 1790s, which divided the country up into various customs districts. And if you were sailing from one customs district to another, if you were sailing to one beyond the state adjacent to you, you had to call in that state and go to a customs office. And so if you were going from uh, if you're going from Maine to New Jersey and Maine was part of Massachusetts, you could go past New Hampshire, which you bordered. You could go past Massachusetts, which you were part of. You could go past Rhode Island, which you bordered, and Connecticut and New York. And you wouldn't have to go into uh, declare your cargo until you got to New Jersey. So the Federalists, the merchants uh, on, in the coastal towns, didn't want statehood because if Maine became separate, then if they wanted to go to uh, New York or Connecticut or Rhode Island, they would have to call in Massachusetts before they, they went to the next state. And then they would have to go to Massachusetts and then to Connecticut and, or Rhode Island and then Connecticut and then New York if New York was their destination. So it wasn't until the Congress revamped the entire customs district, set up, uh, and divided the East Coast, which was, of course, at that point, the only coast, apart from the Great Lakes. But they divided the, the coast into two customs districts, divided at the Perdido River between Florida and Alabama. So all of a sudden, with that gone, that obstacle gone, the vote for statehood in 1820 became instantaneous and overwhelming. Mm-hmm. 
Well, out of all of this, of course, came the great age of shipbuilding in Maine. Let's talk about two aspects of it. Let's start with the merchant ships, the the, the transportation ships that were both coastwise and uh, international. Well, Maine's shipbuilding industry, I mean, it, it, it was chugging along at a very good clip the whole time because ships were ubiquitous. And as I said before, they were the only way of getting around. But for much of the early part of the 19th century, Massachusetts and New York and Philadelphia were major shipbuilding centers. But as Boston and New York developed and as lumber became scarcer and labor became more expensive, Maine became more of the go-to place because it had the technologies, it had the skilled labor, it certainly had the wood. And so people started going to Maine to buy ships. So very often the ships were built here and then sailed away, never to be seen again. There were, of course, many companies and many, many families that owned ships and had their own shipbuilding enterprises and their own merchant companies. But a lot of the ships built here were built for customers from uh, states to the south of us. And then there were the clipper ships. Well, then there were the clipper ships, but the clipper ship age was very, very brief, about seven, five to seven years, depending on how you count it. And a lot of the clippers were still being built in New York and Boston. Um, we did build a number of clipper ships. The most, well, I don't know which the most famous are, but the one that survives the most intact is the Snow Squall, the remains of which, well, the Snow Squall fetched up in the Falkland Islands in the mid to late 19th century. And it lay there sort of decaying, used as a hulk in the harbor at Port Stanley. And then in the, I believe, 80s, Nick Dean, a Mainer, uh, led an expedition or a series of expeditions down there to bring back as much of the ship as he could. And it landed first in Portland and then in the Maine Maritime Museum in Bath. And so you can see the, the remains of the, the structure of the snow squall. And so the, what remains, if you're looking for a ship, is not you know, terribly much or terribly exciting, but it gives you an incredible sense of the size of the lumber um, that went into these vessels and the, and the types of craftsmanship. And so it's, a, it's really going under the hood of the clipper ship age in a way that, um, you know, looking at pictures of lofty vessels and, and ships models doesn't really give you the sort of the sense of the, just the visceral sense of how sturdy these ships were and yet how small. You know, we tend to forget that these vessels were, were pretty pretty small by contemporary standards. This is Conversations from the Pointed Firs here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, Maine. We are speaking today with maritime historian Lincoln Payne on how the ocean has shaped the history and culture of Maine. There's also another ship, uh, clipper ship exhibit at the Maine State Museum, and that's of the St. Mary, um, another 
ship. I think the St. Mary also wound up in uh, the Falklands for a time. But the clipper ships weren't that important to Maine because Maine was really just coming into its own as sort of a ship exporting state. And what Maine really became known for are two types of vessels, the Downeaster, which was a descendant of the clipper ship. They were much bigger. They tended to be almost as fast as the clipper ships, but they were much more capacious. And they, um, the clipper ships really were built for, in the United States, they were built to accommodate the needs of the gold rush. But once the gold rush fever had abated, really what became important was cargo capacity and getting stuff from the East Coast out to the West Coast, because remember, there was no uh, transcontinental railroad until the 1860s. And what was really important for California, although gold remained important, what became quickly very important was their grain trade. And so Downeasters would take finished cargoes out from the East Coast go to San Francisco, pick up cargoes of grain, and then ship that back to the East Coast or to Europe. Uh, so the, the Downeaster was an extremely important vessel type that dominated the long-distance trades of the main shipbuilding industry through the end of the 19th century. Uh, but alongside that were the schooners, and in particular, the multi-masted schooners. And again, you know, we, we, we tend to romanticize the schooners and, and talk about how, what, a, what a wonderful world it was when the world, you know, sort of ran on sail power and these lofty schooners, the four, five, six-masted schooners, like the one that uh, we celebrate at the Maine Maritime Museum, the Wyoming, which by some measures is one of the largest ships ever built. The only problem with that is that these schooners were being built for the coal trade, and they were it was a dirty, filthy trade, um, and the environmental consequences were already being explained and exposed. Boston put uh, limits on the amount of coal and the types of coal that could be burned in the city uh, as early as the late 1800s. Also, the coal industry was a place of incredibly uh, exploitative labor. And so you had children as young as 12 years old working in the Kentucky and Virginia coal fields. So we can romanticize these these vessels. And I think there's a little less romanticization going on now that the Hesper and Luther Little no longer command our attention on Route 1 going through Wiscasset. But for 60 years, those vessels lay at the side of the road and people thought, ah, you know, the, the, the days of sail. And it really became, a, it was a confused period in the 60s and 70s and 80s because in the 60s and 70s, you had the back to the land movement. You had the rise of things like the apprentice shop and wooden boat school, people getting back to the land, people getting back to traditional ways of doing things. And these schooners sort of fit right into that. But the disconnect was that, in fact, the schooners were really represented a, a, a terribly harmful industry, one which we are, you know, this very week are worldwide trying to shut down. So coal, stone, timber, lime, mm-hmm. fish, 
All of these basically were essential natural resources of Maine, which found their markets to the south. Well, uh, yes, but to let's just we have to take a bit of a pause, and the South is an unfortunate segue, but as important as the lumber business was, recent research into the archives has shown that, in fact, uh, Maine shippers in the 1850s made four times as much money in the slave trade than they did in the lumber trade. Wow. And this is something that has been it's an unexamined part of our history and that research has been sort of spearheaded by a woman named Kate McMahon who went to USM and then Howard university and now works at the museum of African-American history in Washington. But there were lots of main ships being built for the slave trade, main ships, in the slave trade owned by Mainers or people who had connections to Maine, uh, Maine officers, Maine crew. So you know, uh, when the, the first major uh, museum exhibition uh, devoted to transatlantic slavery was opened at the, the museum in Liverpool, England, and I went to see it and on one wall, there were a series of little wooden squares and when you opened them up, were the names of the Liverpool families that owned the slave ships, including their addresses. And many of those families were still living in those houses in modern Liverpool. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, this is, this is telling a, a, a history uh, the way it, it is. Um, yeah. That's an amazing new. I had not heard that myself. That there were actually main ship owners actively engaged in the slave trade. I didn't know this until this year, and I didn't know that com the comparative figure between the slave trade and the lumber trades until about a week ago. Wow! So that this research, you know, and this is important stuff. This is why history is important because. You know, history is important in its telling, and it's also important in its hiding. And, you know, we just have to keep kicking over the stones to see what lies underneath. It's amazing. We have still all the records. I mean, that's found found in deep in the archives. It's been there be, to be found forever until there was some kind of social or political will motivation to go look for it. Yes, Exactly. Let's uh, let's talk about the steam engine, specifically um, the coastwise transportation vessels that opened Maine to a different industry, the recreational and rusticator tourism industry. Maine got involved in the steam age, you know, quite quite early. Although I have to say, my favorite story is about a guy who who didn't know much about the technology except what I guess he'd read about in newspapers, and he thought he would build a steam engine using a wooden boiler. But that notwithstanding, Mainers became quite interested in this early on. And the, the steam age really did enable the rapid growth of Maine as sort of vacation land. And that, that moniker didn't come into being until the 1930s. But the the night boats that came up from Boston 
and went to Portland and Bangor and Augusta and lots of the islands along the coast and to Bar Harbor, of course, really did feed uh, Maine as a kind of summer destination. And one thing we have to remember is that the people who were coming up here and rusticating in the in the 19th century were not people driving up for a weekend or a week or two. They were coming up for the season. And interestingly, different cities populated different places along the coast. So you had sort of enclaves of New Yorkers in one place and Philadelphians in another place and Bostonians in a, in a third place. And people from Baltimore, I happen to know some, uh, went to Swan's Island. So there were these very interesting connections. Um, but by and large, the steamships facilitated that. Also the railroad industry. And there was a very tight connection between the railroad industry and the steamships. They, they were rivals, but they also complemented each other because if you were going to an island, you certainly weren't taking a railroad there. And again, this all sort of collapses in the mid-1900s, uh, 20th century, uh, when the, the Route 1 and, and cars, and then, of course, in the 1960s and 70s, the interstate uh, come to Maine. All of that undercut the traditional, or you know, what we think of as the traditional forms of transportation. The fisheries history, of course, is rich. Today, most people look upon it as a, as exclusively the lobster industry, but we did have a trawl industry, a much more diverse fishing industry, and then, of course, we had. Uh, the the mackerel and particularly the sardine industry, which I've always loved. Um, can you talk a little bit about those industries in Maine? Well, those are some of the oldest because they get caught in fish weirs. And we know that native peoples were building fish weirs. I think the oldest one that has been, the remains of which have been found are, is about 3,000 years old from up around Newport, so on a river. But yeah, these fisheries like sardines, which basically were fish weir industries, uh, were extremely profitable for the people who were involved in them. But one of the things that made them so important in Maine in the late 1900s, uh, 1800s was the canning industry. And the canning industry actually grew up to, to sort of meet the demands of the lobster fleets. But one of the things about canning is it doesn't it, it's not an aesthetic it's not an aesthetic food uh, what you get out of a can and so it didn't matter that your lobster was a baby lobster as long as there was some meat in it you would catch it you would rip it open you would put the meat in the in the can but the problem with that is people suddenly started realizing that they were overfishing the lobster and that the industry was or the fishery was close to collapse so size limits started coming into play in the late 1800s. And so thereafter, the, the sardine and herring industries took off. And at one point, there were, I think, 50 canneries up and down the length and breadth of the state. And Eastport and Lubeck, there were 5,000 people, I believe, employed uh, in the canneries and the fishing industry that supported it. And that's actually not quite twice the population of Eastport and Lubeck today. Right. So these were extremely important industries. And they sort of, they 
there was a boom and then there was a bust. And I think the last canning company closed a few years ago. So there was there was a rapid rise and a quick decline. The other thing that's it's that's interesting is that in the canning industry they relied to a very great degree on child labor, and the the laws uh, governing who could be in the coal mines were stricter than the laws governing who could be in the canning industry. So you had very very young children um, working in the canning industry very early on. And although there were child labor laws for industry generally, the canning industry was exempt. There's a wonderful exhibit in a Norwegian fisheries museum that I remember uh, where there were little replica fish and there were little replica cans. And you were asked to pack how many fish could you get in a can and how fast. And it was very clear that with my little fat fingers and lack of spatial orientation. I couldn't I couldn't fill a can. And they would always be too few or too many, and they wouldn't lie right. And uh, the, I was explained to me that I was too old to pack a sardine can, that you needed little fingers and the kind of dexterity of youth. Yes. And once you were down to eight fingers, they probably, you know, well, exactly. <laughs> <you off. laughs> well there's lessons to be learned about boom and bust. I mean, the fact is that that the failure to sustain these fisheries, particularly when we know about the challenges that are available to them, are not only a harbinger of the future, but are a document of the past. When you consider the sardine industry that was and now is absolutely no more. And we, we've seen it in our recent history with the uh, with Maine shrimp uh, mm-hmm. and bottom-feeding fish. Um, what's the future of maritime industry in Maine? Oh, that's, um, that's difficult to say. I think that we're probably going to rely increasingly on aquaculture and our fishing. Although... If we can bring down more dams, we might have a more robust river fishery, uh, perhaps a commercial river fishery. I think that recreational boating is going to remain important, and I think that recreational boat building will also remain important. I see no danger at all to the Bath Ironworks continuing to churn out ships for the U.S. Navy, because as long as there's a military establishment, somebody's got to feed it. I think that the offshore wind industry is going to become increasingly important, and that's going to involve not only the erection of wind turbines, but also the industry that supports them. So if you think about you know, the, the maritime industries in, say, Texas and Louisiana, there are the oil rigs, but then there are the people who service them. And so there's a very robust, small, uh, a fleet of small craft, relatively small craft that are used to deal with them. So I think that's very encouraging. There might be a glimmer of a a transportation revival uh, in terms of ferries, but I'm not terribly optimistic. The biggest constraint on that is the Jones Act and the fact that you can't have ships built overseas running between two consecutive ports. So you can't buy a ferry to go from Portland to Peaks Island. 
in Australia, although the Australians make really good ferries. Um, you can't even buy icebreakers in Finland, although you know the country has one major icebreaker. So there are some constraints on what we do, but I think that the maritime industries will continue to be important. I think one of the things that will also be important is, of course, the continual monitoring of the ocean environment. And so I think that institutions like Casco Baykeepers, Gulf of Maine Research Institute, Bigelow Labs, other organizations are going to be you know, using the sea as a research tool for a long time to come. And I think well, that the, will probably increase. Uh, two points to add to that. The Gulf of Maine, of course, is a unique bioregion. Yeah. Uh, and integrated planning around that is long overdue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that there are a number of people who are trying to essentially um, look at the Gulf of Maine as a, both a, a natural, an ecosystem and a social system, an economic system, and try to essentially align and overlay all the various demands and equities and inequities that can be cited and integrated into a plan on how we, how we develop that industry or that engagement in the future. I also think that there's a possibility of, of uh, port development. The port of Portland is probably going to have a record year this this year, next year. Yes. Um, there might be an opportunity for development of another deep water port or mid-size, mid-depth port for coastwise transportation because it may come to the point where it's much more efficient to move containers uh, either by rail or by ship than it is by putting them in an 18-wheeler and driving them down the interstate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there's a possibility for small craft, small transportation construction uh, in Maine, and maybe that industry could find its rebirth in down east, uh, where it would essentially drive jobs and taxes and economic development as well. Um, I'm pretty optimistic about it, actually. I actually think that since the land is either either polluted or congested, that the ocean is so available to us in ways that are essential to our well-being and our survival. And Maine is rich both in in water as a water-rich state, but also into its its access to the ocean, the, its full its full length. We're going to run out of time, Lincoln. Let's go back to the sense of place. How do you think that's evolved? In your mind, has that sense of place changed? Well, I don't I don't think I can answer that question specifically because I don't know what the mindset was in the past and I can only really speak for myself in the present. But I do think that people in Maine and people who think about Maine and come here do think of the place as a destination rather than the activities as a destination. I mean, obviously people come here to do things, but they also come here to be places. And I think they come here to be in their camps and to be on the water and to be on lakes and rivers. And certainly recreational watercraft, canoes, kayaks, canoes, of course, being directly descended from Native American originals and kayaks also, though not kayaks are Arctic rather than Maine-based craft. But there's an awful lot of place in Maine and people's feelings about Maine. 
you know, I think if you think of New York, people think of, you know, the Metropolitan Museum and, and the opera and, and Wall Street and all of these sort of activities that happen there. Whereas I think in Maine, we, we really identify with, you know, Penobscot Bay or Casco Bay or, or Baxter State Park or Moosehead Lake. And yes, things happen around those places, but really people identify with the places they go to. So I think the sense of place remains extremely important, both for the identity of people who live here and for the aspirations of people who want to come here. I think we should stop right there. Lincoln, this has been a wonderful conversation. I knew it would be. And thank you very much for your time. And thank you for insights. the invitation. My guest today has been Lincoln Payne, who's writing on how the sea has been a most powerful force in the history of the world and of Maine, this ocean state in which we live. Lincoln's book, Sea and Civilization, and Down East, an Illustrated Maritime History of Maine, are comprehensive and accessible assertions of how near and far the sea connects all things. They are available from your local independent bookstore. I'm Peter Neal, host of Conversations from the Pointed Firs. Thanks for listening. You've been tuned in to Conversations from the Pointed Firs, Elite's Island Books audio project, produced by Trisha Badger, theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Visit pointedfurs.org for more information and find us on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.